Welcome to Two Old Bulls. My name is Tom and I'm joined by my partner, Paul. Together we have 75 years of combined sales and management experience. On Two Old Bulls, Paul and I will interview a variety of guests from all types of backgrounds. Our goal is to entertain, inform, and help you grow in whatever you do. So welcome to Two Old Bulls. Now let's get started. Hey, Paul, how's it going today? It's a rainy, cloudy morning here in eastern PA, Tom, but I'm good. I'm yeah, good. starting to feel a little bit of fall, loving it. Uh, summer's over, even though we're going to hit 90 sometime this week. It's You can tell the mornings are, are a little bit, uh, you know, cooling off, if you will, and uh, really, really nice. I love this time of year. You get into the baseball, football all the dynamics of the fall and Halloween. My birthday's coming up, so it's awesome. So, Paul, I know you've got uh, uh, a guest that you know very well, and why don't you tell us about uh, this gentleman? This this is a, a really good friend of mine, and it's, a, a, I believe, one of our uh, most interesting guests, as, as he's going to bring a little bit of a diversity to you and I, Tom, as uh, you and I, are, our background mostly been in industrial sales. This gentleman has 30 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry. He started in finance. And in that, in that, that part of the business, he, he was a, a director of finance and administration for Middle East Africa, and he was located in Paris, France. Um, he also did business planning for the, the Middle East and Latin America. And you would think that career was enough, right? I mean, it, that's, a, that's awesome in itself. However, in 1996, he made the switch to sales. And as, as he was with AstraMerc and AstraZeneca, he, he made that pharmaceutical, uh, pharmaceutical, how do you like that? Pharmaceutical sales, calling on physicians, and later went into positions of regional and national account management with AstraZeneca. So again, thinking that's enough, but no, not now. Even in his retirement, Mark is still keeping his uh, tools sharp, as we say. He's VP of Business Development for Donahue Lynch Investment Group, which does general business consulting for startup companies. He's a graduate of Indiana University with a BS in business and an MBA in finance and accounting. And last but not least, when helping me coach Little League Baseball, he kept uh, the Baco hockey philosophy out and no gloves were dropped or brawls had on the baseball field. This is my good friend, Mark Barty. Hi, Paul. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. We're looking forward to this, Mark. We're looking forward to hearing a lot about the pharmaceutical industry as far as sales and, and some of the things that uh, you learned and not only from, uh, you know, calling on uh, medical doctors, but just the, the way uh, management worked in that industry. Um, just as a just a quick, broad uh, view of, you know, when Tom and I started in the business as young sales guys, uh, when when we were through making our, our calls that we had planned, uh, it was often said by our boss, okay, well, then you're going to cold call and you'd look for smokestacks, you know, go out and look for those smokestacks in the industry. So we're, we're really interested in, uh, in learning a lot about uh, your side of the business. Sure, sure. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, I did start in 1982 at Merck. Uh, prior to that, I worked in the forklift truck industry, as well as industrial fasteners for the aerospace business. It was 
about three years between the two organizations. Um, and then one day I had an opportunity to interview for a financial analyst role at Merck. And I walked in the building and I thought to myself, boy, this really feels different to me. Um, uh, everybody just seemed to be uh, very crisp, very science oriented, even in the finance department, quite frankly. And I realized right then that I was going to embark on a career that basically was going to keep me in a continuing education uh, role uh, from a clinical science, disease state, and different career paths to run down. There was certainly uh, a lot of uh, investment money in the industry, so they spent a lot of uh, money uh, investing in their, their talent and in their manufacturing, uh, you name it. Uh, there, was, there was plenty to go around, and if you think about it, it's a highly regulated industry, so you really do need to have that capital and investment in, in your organization. So that's kind of where I started out. And as you mentioned, um, while I always thought someday I'd like to be in sales, I really wanted to understand the business from the financial perspective. And I was very fortunate to have the first 15, 15 years of my career in Merck's organization. And then later uh, moved on to another division called Astra Merck. And then ultimately, with mergers and consolidations, it became AstraZeneca. And as you pointed out, at age 40, I had this midlife career crisis. And I talked to the CFO of the organization and said, look, I support the sales from a financial perspective. Can I go out and carry a bag? And in our industry, the best way to learn the business is carrying a bag, calling on physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners. These are all uh, professionals who have prescribing capabilities. And to go out and do that sort of thing, um, you have to be prepared to spend basically the rest of your life in some kind of training, whether it's clinical science, disease state, or selling skills. And so I opted to do that at 40, did that for a couple of years. And uh, it was probably one of the best jobs uh, that I had in my life for starters. Um, I was around uh, young people, um, people much junior to me in terms of experience, but, but they were all fantastic salespeople. And I recall my first meeting with the sales team, there were about 10 of us in the room and the sales director welcomed me and said, hey, here's Mark. Uh, he's got plenty of experience within Merck, finance, international, you name it. And uh, it was very glowing, except one young person raised their hand and said, but can he sell? <laughs> and, if you, and if you think about sales teams, um, you all have to perform at the individual level. But at the end of the day, some of your uh, compensation is around your team performance. And what these people really were thinking is he has no prior experience, a lot of corporate experience, but can he get out there? and uh, get prescriptions um, prescribed, if you will, uh, in, within the territory. So that's kind of like how it all started. I'm gonna pause for a minute and just see if you have any, any follow-up questions associated with that. Yeah, we all have those stories, Mark. I mean, uh, first of all, your background's pretty impressive. That's, uh, that's a great uh, backdrop in terms of 
you know, where you come from and, and different experiences. Uh, I wasn't smart enough to do the finance stuff. So I'll just tell you right up front, I went into sales so I could, uh, lean into my given talent, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a common situation. I think about, uh, my background in sales and the team, you know, you have this team and, and typically salespeople are fairly, you know, there's a lot of similarities amongst the groups of salespeople, very competitive, look at me, you know, uh, self-motivated, all that. So, so when you came into that group, obviously they were already thinking, Hey, can this guy cut it? Cause he's going to be in the trenches with us. And I see that all the time. Um, it's, it's, it's always that trial period where they're watching you and, and trying to get to know you. And they're talking amongst themselves saying, Hey, what do you think about this guy? So what was your response to that? I mean, did, did you, oh. I, I think you had a sports background. Paul's telling me you played sports. So you probably had that a little bit of that in, in you as well. Hey, I'll show you what I can do, buddy. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. And uh, I did play baseball through college and there were a lot of things you learn about life uh, overall, not just business and sports, but life. And that, and I mentioned this earlier, you're an, in, you, you have an individual position to play, but the team has to win. And if the team's not winning and you're doing great, uh, that that's not relevant in the grand scheme of it all. But uh, in response to that feeling, and I have to admit, at 40, it was a bit of a risk. I left a nice senior level job in finance and there was no going back. So I either had to be successful in sales and grow or I was in big trouble uh, within the organization. Um, but my response to that was I identified two or three young guns, I'll call them that, who I really thought they were very successful from a metrics perspective, but they were also fantastic communicators. <laughs> Excuse me. And what I did was I went out and rode with them um, well before I took over my territory. And even while I was in my territory, because I would needed needed refreshers occasionally. Um, but I think by doing that, uh, and they were much younger than I was, I think right off the bat, they looked at me as not some senior admin guy coming in expecting to show them what to do, but rather I opened myself up to their education. And you can learn from everybody and anyone in an organization, regardless of age. And so that's how I first um, felt that I was being accepted. And then obviously after that, uh, once I finished the training, which was quite intense, uh, I went out on territory and one of the things that I learned quickly was, you know, you get a target list of, say, uh, uh, maybe 100 doctors and you have your high prescribers at the top all the way down to the low prescribers. And I started with the low prescribers to try to get all the bugs out of my detail. And, you know, we talk about detailing in the business and, you uh, you know, sometimes you might only get two minutes with a physician to get your features and benefits and side effects across. And that's not a lot of time. Um, sometimes you'd have a longer period if you had a lunch uh, at the office with the staff, but you really had to sharpen those communication skills. You had to be efficient, effective, 
in what you were communicating to these doctors. And lo and behold, you never really got anyone to agree to writing a prescription the first go around. It's a, it's a selling cycle and it, it takes a while. And one of the things that I learned from my sales director and the staff early on is just show up at the offices. When you first walk in, they don't know who you are. They don't necessarily uh, treat you with much patience because they have a number of patients in the waiting room. And uh, so it's like, hey, we don't know you. You haven't earned the right to get in here. So it was showing up uh, every day, every week to your physician's offices, trying to build rapport with the people at the front desk. And after a while, they started to realize, hey, this person's a hard worker. We're going we're gonna to let him in. Let's let him get through it into the back and talk to Dr. Jones. And so those were some of the things that I picked up early on that uh, I thought would be important to get, to get the ball rolling. And again, I'll stop and see if there's anything that uh, you want to chat about with that. I think it. Uh, what I liked, uh, uh, what I heard earlier, uh, uh, Mark, that is a little bit different than our industry as a whole was uh, uh, talking about the young guns and the team compensation. Um, in our industry, for the most part, it's uh, even with the company I'm with today, it's it's an individual compensation. Now, uh, my good friend Tom, there, uh, I know at the company that he worked with, and then I I did uh, work with them for a little while in a position at Tom Health. He brought in a team concept there, and I thought it was very, very successful. And it uh, it just helped the sales team, you know. I think as a whole, reach their goals and and help each other out versus the kind of the you know the cocoon type thing where they they had their little individual silos. What do you think about right. that? Tom? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it fosters that team element because salespeople are inherently selfish and we want to go out and conquer the world. And, and like I said before, look at me, look at me. I used to have a sales guy that said, I, I built it, I shipped it, I booked it, I sold it, I did it all. I did the literature. And we were joking, obviously, but it just kind of captures a lot of the salespeople are very self-consumed with look at me. So the team compensation builds this element of helping each other. But one thing I picked up on with Mark, and this is good for the young professional out there, it's very, very important what he did, and that was he had humility. Even though he was 40-ish, uh, he was humble enough to say, I don't really know what I'm doing here. Teach me. And just by doing that, simply doing that, that team is going to let their guard down and say, hey, I want to help this guy. He's willing to learn and you flip the table on them, and all of a sudden they're wanting you to do well. So I'm impressed by that. It, but but going back into your – the other thing I picked up on was you practiced with the the smaller uh, uh, prescribers, I think you low, call low, them. Per, low prescribers, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that's another great – I mean, I'm picking up on your background in sports. I mean, you you know, you do the little things. You, you go out and practice. You're – you're trying to build that team camaraderie. So I, I really think the more I listen to you, I think what position did you play at Syracuse? Well, it wasn't Syracuse. It was uh, Indiana University. Now, this is Paul. Yeah. See, Paul, you screw me up every time. I, did. I got it wrong. Syri How did you get Syracuse out of Indiana? I mean, that's They're a close. They're close. They're only <laughs> so, the, so what, 
<laughs> what did you, uh, what position did you play so, in Indiana? Yeah. So I was a center fielder. Um, and, uh, you know, I moved around the outfield positions, but my claim to fame growing up was center field. Uh, I used to like just having a clear view of home plate and being able to react uh, quickly uh, and support the right field, left field, and of course, second base and shortstop as, as you know, balls were hit out in the field. But, um, you know, I wanted to come back to your comment about the individuality of it. And listen, we were competitive individually. That was first and foremost. That's how you in our industry, as, as it sounds like every industry in sales, is you want to be a top performer. So if we had, you know, at any given time, 10 people on the staff, I started out saying to myself, okay, I'm on the bottom. I'm batting ninth, if you will. Uh, but I want to be top three, ultimately. And, you know, I did the job for a couple of years. And within a short period of time, my uh, market share, call it batting average, if you want to make, if we make a baseball analogy, was up there in the top three. And in addition to being willing to learn from the young people, on top of now performing, because as I got good work practicing with the low prescribers, I started to move up into the ranks as to the high prescribers and start building a relationship uh, with their staff and then ultimately getting in and trying to you know, over time, convince them to at least try uh, one of our drugs. And uh, look, the reality is, you you know, just like in all um, bags, you have those drugs that are potentially blockbusters. And I had a few of them in my bag. And I got to tell you, there's nothing more exciting than having a blockbuster out there. And the drug I sold initially was Prilosec. You, you now see it over the counter, but it was the first of its kind in the uh, GI uh, proton pump inhibitor world. And um, the reality was once doctors got comfortable with the safety profile of it, the efficacy was off the charts. And, you know, some, some people would say, well, anybody could sell Prilosec. It's a great drug. Well, anybody might have been able to sell it. However, you still had to rank yourself in, in the, on your team and regionally and nationally. So you still wanted to be at the top, right, um, being selfish. But on the flip side of that, um, getting back to the team concept, you get what you incentivize in these compensation programs. And because there was a team incentive, what was nice there is that everyone shared uh, their best practices. They shared product knowledge that they knew. Um, if you had problems with the uh, sales tool, they would help you with that. So it, it was just like sports and maybe just like an orchestra, anything, you know, you got to be team and individually driven, but you have to want to be the best you could be as an individual. And that's kind of where it played out for me in those few years. No, I totally agree. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm probably one of the most competitive people you'll meet but I also believe in the team. So it's a, it's a fine line in there. You got to be driven and also to the point of where you're not burning bridges. You got to have the, the uh, people skills, emotional intelligence. I've seen people in my career where they're one dimensional and they're so intense, intense in terms of their selfish drive. The other people pick up on it. 
So there's a fine line in there where you have to drop the gloves, go back to the locker room, talk to the other people, have some humility because the top people on the team, people, they already know who they are. So you don't have to mm-hmm. cop an attitude, right? You're just, the right. results are showing people. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's still humility, even with the ego of uh, the results don't lie. You know, the boss is up there saying, Hey, look what Mark did, Mark, 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 or Tom or Paul or whoever. So, you know, that's another little dynamic in there. Talk about that a little bit in terms of when you were the the, the head head guy out there, how did you check your ego a little bit when you're talking to the other people, maybe that were in third, fourth, or fifth place? Right. So obviously, you know, you're not always on top every year or every season or every reporting period. Um, but after a while, uh, well, first of all, I started humble in that group. So uh, I felt good about myself, but I also didn't have to uh, show any uh, end zone dancing, if you will, if I happen to have a good quarter or two or a year. Um, I think it was just kind of like, hey, I am what my record says I am. And um, if, if other people need some assistance, I'll certainly work with them. But I never stopped asking for assistance from my peers. You know, I wanted to get better all the time. So um you know, I guess I, I never really had a problem with that because a lot of times, you know, I will I will check my ego at the door before I went in there because on any given day you can get beat up pretty good by a, a healthcare provider if they're not in the mood to listen. They may have had a bad day. And that's the other thing. You know, after a while, you built strong relationships with some of your docs and even the ones that you think you had the best relationships with, you might walk in. And he bites your, he or she bites your head off because they're too busy to deal with it. Well, if you reflect, they're not having a good day. They're seeing sick people all day long. Maybe they just lost one of their favorite patients, if you will. Um, and, and that, and, and I mean that by they may have passed away. So, you know, docs are human beings. Um, they have rough days as well, but uh, some days could be kind of rough on yourself and you could make, you could stop and see 12 people in a given day and you might just not hit it with any of them. And you go home dejected that day, but the next day you get up and you start the process all over again. And one of those soft skills of being resilient, right? After a rough day, you go back and, and fight again. And the next day could be fantastic. So that's what I loved about the job. You were always moving, always seeing new, stopping in new offices, meeting new people, meeting new physicians. It was, it was quite um, an exciting career for a couple of years for me. And I'm glad I started out there because again, that's where you learn the business. And, uh, uh, you know, after a couple of years, someone knocked on the door and they said, Hey, listen, we know you wanted to do this. You've got a lot of good experience, but now we need to blend what you learned out on the street, which is the core of our business, we would like to bring that skill set along with your 15 years of financial experience. And we want to put you in account management, calling on large customers. And I'll just jump into that a little bit. I know you, you both know what it means, but in essence, health plans, insurance companies, uh, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, United Healthcare, all the regional players, 
calling on them, as well as large pharmaceutical benefit managers, they all have formularies. And they also have clinical teams. And if you wanted your drug to be on formulary so that when the sales reps went out to sell the drug, you weren't hearing obstacles from physicians saying, hey, it's not on United's formulary, I'm not prescribing it, or it's not on Medicaid, or it's not on uh, some Medicare plan. So I realized that going into account management was, uh, kind of providing air cover for the sales reps, right? So if you did a good job there, the sales reps could do a better job out in the field. There were fewer obstacles and challenges to deal with um, because some of the controls, utilization controls that managed care puts on drug prescribing on physicians, they don't get to prescribe everything they wanna prescribe. They have to prescribe what an individual's insurance will cover. And that could be very tricky and they also, I work for a brand company. They like if there's a generic out there, even if it's not an exact copy of what's out there in the brand, a lot of uh, uh, benefit packages will require a generic first. So uh, when I moved into that world, what was really exciting was that I now spoke their language because the people on the other side of the negotiating table were all commercially driven, financially driven individuals. So I got it immediately. And I could call in a clinical person when a medical director wanted to hear about uh, our drug, uh, especially if it was a new, excuse me, a new drug to market. But then I would, you know, immediately get to, we would get to the negotiating table. And in essence, we would say, we want to have our product on your formulary uh, so that a, a patient pays a lower copay for our drug, what will it take to get it on formulary? And the first test is clinically, it makes sense. Um, it's either, either novel or if it's a me too kind of a drug, what is the then financial value of us putting it on to instill competition? And so I was in my element there. And while I spent two to three years uh, calling on physicians, I spent the rest of my time uh, calling on managed care customers. And I got to tell you, um, you know, making an analogy, if you love a sport and you play in college and someday you want to go to the big leagues, well, going into account management, both at the regional and national level, felt like I was in the big leagues and I had a blast. It was a lot of fun. That's uh, interesting, Mark, because in our industry, the analogy would be that Tom and I have uh, what we call distribution and OEMs and, and the thrill of that, when you get a large OEM, like a, a John Deere or a cat, it, it, it's the big thrill. Like, uh, I would guess one of your blue cross blue shield wins would be, and it's yeah. more of a, and I, what I'd like to hear about that too, is it just sounds like it's a little di different level of sales where, you know, with physicians, you're, you were mostly one-on-one, -on -one, but with uh, the managed care and stuff, you had to take in a little bit more of a team. Uh, yep. to help you finalize that sale. Right. That's absolutely true. And the way that the way it works out there is, and I'll, at the time, um, at the national level, I had a uh, pharmacy benefit management company called Medco. Now, Medco was uh, acquired by Express Scripts, another pharmacy benefit manager. But while I was there, Medco was the granddaddy of what they call PBMs in the United States. And we had about uh, 
uh, $2.5 billion of prescriptions going through their book of business. Now they had employers all across the country. They had health plans all across the country that signed up with Medico to adjudicate their claims. And while we had a team, none of the downstream regional account directors or the clinical folks reported to me as the national account director. I had no direct reports. I was a lone ranger, if you will, from that perspective. Um, what happens is because of the size of the customer and because of the importance it was to uh, AstraZeneca, I got a lot of you know, unofficial authority, if you will, because people would listen to what I was telling them about this customer. And if we had a new product coming to market, uh, the, the goal was to get on formulary as soon as possible. And so, you know, I get to, I, I was able to get teams together, uh, put a plan together. Uh, obviously we would strategize as a team and then execute. And the, the, the trophy was gaining, uh, what we call tier two formulary access for our respective products. And um, I got to tell you, sitting in a negotiating room for hours, going back and forth, uh, that was the thrill of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wish I could do it again today. I, I would, you know, I, that, that's what I miss uh, being retired. And, you know, the reality is, you know, at the end of the day, when you're negotiating, right? And, and by the way, there was a lot of negotiating training that went on in addition to the clinical training. And we also did a lot of role playing uh, amongst ourselves uh, to figure out what might be the, 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 the obstacles in a negotiation. And, uh, but the soft skills in selling, uh, being able to communicate, being able to listen, building rapport, uh, having some empathy for what their problems are in their book of business, those were all important uh, attributes. And you know, without tooting my own horn, I had those skill sets naturally. What I needed was to build a financial career, which I did early on, and then add on the uh, clinical side where, where needed. But once we got into the negotiations, honestly, I think my customer trusted me. They knew I would give them the straight scoop. When I had a red line, I would make sure I shared it. When they had a red line, we couldn't cross they shared it and we tried to look for ways to expand the business without, you know, walking away from, uh, you know, a strong business opportunity because, you know, we put out good products and they wanted to be able to uh, offer our products uh, to their to their employer and health plan base as well as patients ultimately. It so that's like kind of the transition. Yeah. Sounds yeah, like you, you basically had a consultative sales approach where, you said as a partner with them and it wasn't this, I'm pushing my agenda and you have your agenda. You guys were in the, in the room together working in a cooperative manner to, to get the same end game. Sounds like you had that level of relationship. Yeah, I did. And uh, what really was nice is because of the size of the business, I also had the ear of senior executives uh, all the way up to the CEO uh, in uh, in the U.S. Uh, because, hey, we lose, if we lost a, a customer like Medco on a particular drug line, 
um, that was catastrophic for the business. So I had a lot of support on both ends. And the good news is that my customer trusted me, my executive team trusted me, and we would bring people together. Now, that's not to say we had, we didn't have hiccups over the years. Um, I remember I negotiated uh, a very good contract uh, with the help of our, our uh, product team, and we were going to be uh, in a position of sole and exclusive at the time, and we had just inked the deal. And we were celebrating, we were all excited. And a couple of weeks later, a competitor product was added to formulary. It, it shocked our world. I remember within minutes of this getting out on the street. Um, and, and the way I found out about it was a, a rep out in Michigan uh, said they heard from a doctor who heard from a rep from the competitor side that their drug was going on this formulary. Well, it was true. It happened. And, you know, I was in shock. The company was in shock and it caused, uh, caused me to lose a, a few sleepless nights. But it, in the end, because we had a good relationship, um, they explained why they did it. Um, they felt bad about it. Um, it was limited access. So we still, in essence, had a strong formulary position. But the reality was, you know, you account directors could lose their jobs if uh, things like this happen uh, because of the financial impact to the organization. But it worked out in the end and we got stronger for it and uh, life went on. And that's part of the resilience piece uh, that you have to be able to get up the next day and, and go make it work. Um, and it never happened again, um, but business is business and it can be cutthroat at times. Hmm. Hey, so, Mark, and I don't know, you left in 2014. I don't know if you kind of, you know, hear from people that are still in the business, but obviously, just like in our industry, things have changed, right? So, uh, for instance, today in your industry, I don't see a doctor. I see a, a physician's assistant or a, or a nurse today. So mm -hmm. for your guys in sales today, is there still that uh, call on the doctor or is it, uh, is it different? What, what, what happens today? So, I, I mean, I do stay in touch with, with some of my colleagues. Um, obviously COVID was a, was a game changer, right? I mean, it was hard to see physicians in the first place, right? They are very busy people. Now you add in passing, uh, COVID around uh, would would be a mess going in and out of doctor's offices. So definitely things have changed. From what I understand, um, uh, reps today, uh, if you had a good relationship with your doctors, you might do some, you know, 15 minute Zoom calls, something like that. Uh, but they are still trying to get in. But to your point, uh, seeing doctors is much harder, but you have to keep in mind that uh, physician assistants and nurse practitioners in many states have prescribing uh, capabilities. So, you know, you call on who, who can prescribe. Uh, physicians still are in need of samples. So, you, you know, to, to try a drug before somebody spends a lot of money on, on certain drugs. Um, so, you know, I can't tell you for sure what it must feel like today as a new rep. I, I, I don't know, but I can't imagine 
that they're, you know, back in the day, it was an arms race. You know, every pharmaceutical company would hire as many reps and it was just volume, 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 get out there, call on as many docs. Now it's probably more of a surgical selling approach at the, at the physician level. Um, but yeah, by, it's, it's harder to see. And also on the managed care side, their utilization controls uh, are much harsher. You know, if they block you, uh, your drug, um, there's no way a physician can prescribe it. So uh, you really have to be competitive with your rebate pricing or your discount pricing. And, you know, I will tell you that, and it's in the news all the time about how expensive pharmaceuticals are. And I'm, I'm not on this call to justify uh, pricing. Um, I'm sure there's gouging that goes on and I've seen it as well, but uh, to get on formulary, you have to negotiate a lower price. And a lot of those prices are significantly less than what you see as a nationally published list price. Similar to if you go into a hospital and you get treated in the ER and you get a statement back, you know, you say, wow, I just went in I waited three hours, got to see an ER doc for half an hour, and this is a $5,000 bill. Well, nobody's paying $5,000 unless you're a cash payer. And in the United States, mostly it's insurance driven. Um, obviously, there are some cash payers who don't have the right medical coverage, but um, you know those prices, the net prices are nowhere near as high as, as uh, what people might think and what the politicians will say. Um, now there's also, uh, the biologics, which are, have been historically covered under the medical benefit. These are the drugs that you hear are, are infusions or injections, and they can run anywhere from 8,000 to $10,000 a month. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, the science behind it is incredible, but for the most part, uh, unless you're a cash payer, nobody's really paying those amounts. What's the, uh. As you look from the inside and I'm on the outside, what, what is, what are, is there any advice for people? Like uh, I would say like any trick tricks or tips that you would advise people in that quest to try to minimize the impact of some of the healthcare expenses or anything people can do. I mean, you mentioned generics, but outside of that, is there anything, cause I've, in my experience, and I'm not an expert on this at all, what I've found is like, let's say you get a $3,000 bill. If you call the finance office, many times they will either cut it or spread it out or what have you. I mean, is there any tricks that you would recommend to yeah. people? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I, I know of any, you know, approaches one way or the other. Um, I mean, healthcare in the United States of America is expensive and that's the market we live in. Uh, obviously, European countries, they have regulators that say this is the price no matter what. And of course, a lot of that backs up into the United States. But this is where a lot of the innovation is occurring. And that's where the, the expense is. But, um, you know, first and foremost, uh, if, if you're not working for an employer that provides both a medical and pharmacy budget, which is optimal situation to be in, uh, you know, have some kind of insurance because medical and drug costs can be very high if you're a cash payer. And uh, I know that's easier said than done because sometimes small organizations do not uh, provide an, uh, a benefit 
Um, but that is, you know, first and foremost, that drove me early in my life to make sure I, I had good insurance. And in, in the pharmaceutical industry, we did um, because, A, we're in healthcare and we understand uh, that it's important. But I, I also want to point out that, you know, people say, uh, you know, my copay goes up every year. Uh, what I contribute to my employer goes up every year. At the end of the day, it's the employers who are deciding what the benefit is, right? That's what they're paying for. And in some cases, they ask the insurance company to take on the risk. In other cases, they're self-insured. So what you as an individual get as, as a medical or pharmacy benefit is what your company decided to provide you. And, you know, you're watching the uh, auto workers strike now. I'm sure uh, health benefits are on the, on the uh, agenda for discussing. Now, I think they have pretty good benefits. I'm not an expert there. But if you don't have it through an employer, <clears throat> you know, you got you to gotta find a way to get it because you don't want to get stuck with being limited to what drugs you can get because you can't afford them. Um, and there are companies out there. Good RX, for example, uh, they have a way to get uh, products uh, uh, inexpensively for for patients who use their coupons or their cards. So, those are the kinds of things you should keep your eyes open for, um, and uh, you know, go from there. But unfortunately, if I could solve the cost of healthcare in the United States, I wouldn't be sitting here on a Saturday morning talking to you guys. Sadly. <laughs> You'd be on your boat somewhere. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that because um, uh, just a couple things real quick. It, it my, my daughter, I love her dearly. The liberal is, is, you know, always giving me, well, look at national health care in Italy and all that. And I keep saying, well, that's great. Well, just give me one life-saving drug that's come out of Italy. And of course she can right? because mm -hmm. it comes over here. But the internet is changing things, right? So you've got right. the, the RX <laughs> And also Mark Cuban, by the way, yes, absolutely. Yep, that's going to, I think, affect drug prices. Last but not least, you mentioned the auto workers. One of the things they're striking for, uh, Mark, is they lost some of their medical uh, benefits, I think, during the last contract or something. That That is part of their uh, issue right now is trying to regain uh, some of that uh, in this yeah this new contract. So and it's always going to be a fun debate in the U.S., right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in all honesty, as we age, we use more health care, right? So the worst time to take it from you is when you get older. Now, thankfully, Medicare kicks in uh, when we get to a certain age. And I must tell you, uh, on a personal level, Medicare and the Medicare supplemental that I use today are perfectly fine. Um, I have not felt that I was being treated in inappropriately from a coverage perspective. So I think that's working. Uh, of course, I contributed to that over the years, and I feel uh, entitled to it. Uh, and most physicians obviously take Medicare. But, you know, the one thought I had, uh, quite honestly, that, um, and since we, we just touched health benefits and politics a little bit, you know, there was a cry for Medicare for all in the last uh, election. And, you know, that's that's out there a little bit. Uh, universal coverage. And it happens in Europe and it's very successful. But to try to transition to that in this country might be a little too draconian. Right. You would blow up an entire industry. 
uh, jobs would be lost and it would just be be kind of rough. And I'm not sure we want to trust the government to having all that responsibility. But, you know, I often wondered, like, why not peel out newborns and have a, an infant Medicare, if you will, and that kind of insurance coverage until they're, say, an adult, 18, and being able to go out and get benefits from employers might not be a bad way to start. Um, most of the healthcare is inexpensive. Obviously, the exceptions would be taken care of, but it would get those people off the employer's books, give them a little bit of relief, although they have to pay in to some you know, actuarial fund. And then you'd have medical records tracked for these infants through toddler, through, you know, teenage years, and you'd have a good database and you'd be able to do some analytics and figure out what would be the, the best uh, protocols for, for treating certain diseases as people age. And then the insurance for the working class would be borne by the employers who in many ways should provide good health care because you want to keep your employees productive, right? Um, the last thing you want to do is skimp on health care and have somebody not working because they're not getting the proper care. So I kind of throw that out just in case any politician is listening to this <laughs> podcast to, to see yeah, if I, they can't do it. I was in a uh, bar in Germany uh, talking to four or five uh, folks from over there and uh, I think one guy was from Lebanon. The other guys were from Germany. Of course, I was U.S. And we sat around for probably two hours and had this discussion. And it was really not uh, in-your-face type of of uh, discussion. It was really more laid back and calm. It was interesting listening to the different perspectives. And I kind of came to the conclusion of the U.S. is more of a self-reliant uh, type model. In other words... You know, the healthcare, as long as I can remember, I knew that I, Tom, had to go out and get a job if I was going to provide for my family in the context of healthcare. So what I always looked at is like if, if that was, I'm not, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but if that was given to me, like let's say Europe, uh, some of the self-reliant uh, free enterprise capitalism has taken off the table. In other words, you know, there's no free lunch and then what really shows up financially for the individual is over there, I think it's 60, maybe upwards of 80% uh, tax rate right, compared, right. Com compared to over here. So we came to the conclusion, or I, at least I did, hey, I'll take my chances, give me the self-reliant model, I'll invest the delta, and I'll have more individual wealth as a person that doesn't mind working. So right. that's kind of how I came down on it. And the other guy said, well, that's great, but I don't have to pay for the kid's college. I don't have to pay for this knee replacement. And yeah. I said, that's wonderful, but you've got 50 grand in savings and I've got a half a million. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. Well, look, hey, there, there are both, you know, I, I personally don't think it's an either or. I mean, I prefer the self-reliant because like you, I got out, got a job, uh, wanted to have uh, medical coverage when I started a family. I wanted to have uh, life insurance, and certainly I wanted the best medical care I could bring to them if, God forbid, they needed it. And I'll tell you, quite frankly, if you raise a family, you know, no one's unscathed. No, you know, you're going to end up at Children's Hospital or someplace, and you want to be able to go there. Now, there are some safety nets, but um, similarly, 
when I was in France, uh, no one ever complained when I lived there. No one ever, the French never complained about their insurance. It was universal coverage. And, but to your point, I couldn't believe the, the taxes that came out of everyone's paycheck. But in some way, shape or form, I got to believe that uh, at the end of the day, whatever it takes to cover people, whether the government's paying for it, whether the employer's paying for it, whether you're paying for it, if you add up all the costs, net, net, I bet you they're all pretty close. Um, but because we live in this country, capitalism is the way we go. And, uh, you know, we want to be self-reliant. Uh, and, and, and I... You know, I wouldn't want it any other way either. But I what I do say is if, if we're a country that prides itself on capitalism and productivity, then if one of our, you know, if our labor force gets sick, we better have the right care so that they can get back to work. If we want to boast about productivity, um, I do want to come back to, uh, Paul, something you said regarding uh, Mark Cuban and, and technology and I, I do know that Amazon had a program in place uh, to distribute pharmaceuticals. And I think that'll be, a, you know, in addition to good RX, those kinds of companies, I think they're coming soon because there are a lot of, and I'll use the phrase middlemen, middle women, whatever, that increase the costs associated with delivery of healthcare. There's also frivolous lawsuits that is out there. And, you know, that kind of stuff needs to get under control. But again, if I could figure that out, I, I wouldn't be here this morning. But it, it's a difficult it's a difficult thing. And I just keep hoping that uh, smart people will come to the table and get engaged and, and try to get this all sorted out, because uh, as a country, we deserve much better than that. I tell you what, it's been a good uh it's been some good time with you this morning. And I can tell by talking with you and you sharing with Paul and I, I mean, you've got a wealth of knowledge. It's pretty in incredible. So what, what do you find yourself doing now on a lazy Tuesday afternoon? Uh, I mean, what, what, what's life for Mark look like? Well, uh, well, things have slowed down with the um, business consulting, business development, and it was always kind of a part-time gig, if you will. Um, so that's pretty much coming to an end, you know, re retirement, uh, feels like Saturday every day, you know, and, and that's a nice feeling, right? But I must admit, uh, you know, you can't sit around and play golf or pickleball all day long. You got to find some other things. So, you know, I pay attention to my own investments because that's got to last me and, until it's the end. Um, and I am always looking for something that would allow me to take advantage of my prior experience and, and do maybe some business consulting for smaller companies or even get back into the pharma business. Uh, one of the jobs I had uh, about a year ago, I was, I was involved in a healthcare analytics startup and it was a blast because the data that these folks had would be very relevant to, to uh, drug manufacturers. And so I was involved in that for a little while um, and that, that came to an end and, but I still sit as a board observer with them, but, uh, you know, I'm still searching, but ironically, you know, I get up in the morning, uh, enjoy 
catching up on all the digital news and, and knowing what's happening in the business world, get some exercise. That usually takes a couple of hours. You know, before you know it, the day's over. Um, but I, 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 I would, my advice to anyone is uh, if you enjoy your job, uh, and you're not getting any pressure and your direct manager is a decent human being, hang in there for as long as you can, because uh, life is good when you're collecting a paycheck. Um, but uh, if, you, if you don't have that, uh, then, you know, you'll find something. But I'm in this strange place where some things pop up, but I don't want to commit because I want to be able to travel. And so it's back and forth and it's just finding uh, the right window to, to jump in. And, and, uh, you know, I constantly search, but like many people, I don't have any hobbies. I'm not, I'm not, uh, painting. I'm, you know, I don't have any of that. Unfortunately, uh, I was enjoying pickleball until I went down with a herniated disc. Um, and it's, you know, as much as I was having fun, uh, that kind of pain level is not worth it. So I give that's you the inside of, Yeah. Pretty neat, Mark. You're open and candid about this because that's that's cool. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, you'll figure it out, and uh, you're, you've had a great career. Paul's getting ready to 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 walk out and be Mister Independent, the retired Baco. So maybe you two can compare notes. And uh, you know, I've got I've got to keep grinding it out on my side. But it's funny when you think about Paul and I've talked about this because I'm in a grind. I mean, last week, for example, I mean, I was grinding all week and about the time I was hanging up my, my, uh, <laughs> my gear, if you will, uh, about three 30, I got another call and another crisis. And I'm like, when is this week going to end? Right. But then you'd go to the other side of that. And it's like, you're staring out the window and like the phone's not ringing and you don't have the email. And it's like, Paul and I've talked about that. And it is something that uh, people talk about the retirement goal, and then you get there, and maybe it's not all what what you thought it would be. So right, right. Well, again, I you know, trust me, I would never be able to go back into the grind as you just dis, you know described. Those days are definitely over. But you know, there could be something in between. A little, you know, get intellectually stimulated maybe help someone negotiate a deal somewhere just enough uh, or come up with a hobby or a passion that you might have that you haven't been able to spend the time for. But uh, you know, it's, it's a tough one. Um, but I, I like the independence, the freedom. And thankfully, you know, I had a great career in terms of financial security now. Um, and I need to be smart about my finances, but, uh, I will tell you the first month that goes by that you don't see the paycheck go into the account, uh, your, your knees will buckle. It'll be temporary, but they will buckle for sure. Well, I think it's been a, another great, I know it's been another great episode of two old bulls. Mark, thanks for sharing some time this morning. I know we had a little bit of a scheduling difficulty, but we made it work and, I really appreciate uh, tapping your brain and uh, good luck to you and your future endeavors. Paul, do you have anything to add? Oh, no, Mark's a great guy. I'm glad he uh, joined us and gave us his time and his uh, knowledge in the pharmaceutical sales industry. I, you know, we're two old bulls. Hopefully there's some young sales guys out there that listened and picked up some things. And Mark, I'll see you at the next uh, breakfast meeting we have where we discuss right. the world problems, right? Okay. So. Tom, Paul, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on with you today.
Well, we do. We, we appreciate it as well. This is a uh, two old bulls. If you have any comments, you can email at uh, uh, two. Oh, what is it? Old bulls at outlook.com. Old bulls at outlook.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.